0: Hi, everyone. My name is Stephen Wakabayashi, and you're listening to Yellow Glitter, Mindfulness Through the Eyes and Soul of Queer Asian Perspectives. This episode, we're joined by our lovely guest, Randy Kim. Randy Kim is a queer second-generation Viet-Kamai American from the Chicagoland area. Randy currently serves as board member with the National Cambodian Heritage Museum. He is the co-producer with founder Ada Chang for Talk Stories, an Asian-American diaspora storytelling show in Chicago. He is the producer and host of the Bon Mi Chronicles podcast, which can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all your other podcast platforms. Randy is currently working on his master's in nonprofit management at DePaul University. Hi, Randy. So finally glad to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Stephen.
0: Yeah, I discovered your stuff through a recommendation from one of my queer Asian friends and dug into your podcast, The Me Chronicles, and absolutely love the platform and the stories that you've been able to uh, bring to light of all these people, from celebrities to other people doing really crazy, amazing, great work in the community. Um, it's just such a pleasure to listen to that and also uh some of uh I, I stalked you and I listened to some of your podcast episodes that you had done on other uh platforms and um uh, just really interesting story and wanted to dive into it on the show with you.
1: Oh, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to my show and also shout out to your friend for recommending uh my show to you and it's really an honor to have to really be on your show i really appreciate podcasters like yourself that are uh doing the the lifting to bring the stories of queer asian americans into the surface i think it's about time it's been long overdue and i'm really glad that you are uh helping to front that work so i really appreciate listening to your show
0: oh thank you and we both know it's a it's a lot of passion blood sweat and tears into it
1: <laughs> yeah sometimes more blood more sometimes unnecessary yeah. bleeding you know and i sometimes don't yeah. have enough band-aids yeah. like I, I need to get a band-aid for this you know? like, but, i'm
0: just but, i'm just yeah. holding this gripping this
1: <laughs> <laughs> you you know it well i yes. mean i'm sometimes like like i think this month as i'm recording the uh, upcoming fourth season i got a new microphone and i ran into a lot of uh I, I was really humbled i had a very humbling experience because i got this microphone and i did not know how it really was supposed to work and i did not realize putting this one would pick up all these background noises and i'm like This is why I'm, like, even a year into this, I'm still learning. I'm still making mistakes. And as painful (laughs) as it is, I accept it. I have to move on. And I think, like, lately in the last few episodes, I'm like, I think I'm getting this figured out. I think I know Mm -hmm. what would be the best uh, way of recording. So it's still a work in progress. And I believe that it will continue to be a work in progress as long as I continue to do this.
0: Yeah. With so many other things in life, right? It's, um, you know, what's a work in progress, at least for our country, is just COVID and everything that's happening. And um, I just want to ask you, just how is everything going with you and your life amidst this pandemic?
1: Well, I think right now, I was just grieving the loss of of anthony Visna so who is a queer Cambodian american writer i mean he was really on his way to becoming another important voice in our southeast asian Cambodian american community i i think the only other author that really obtain a higher profile in the literary world in the Cambodian cambodian community i, I use Khmer and cambodian interchangeably here so you'll see me Around these two words, uh was Long Ung who wrote First They Killed My Father. And and he was only 28 years old uh when he passed. And I think for us, it's like a loss of a family member. It's a loss of a creative, uh, a loss of a of an important uh, voice for my generation. Um it's it's heartbreaking. And I think it just for the Cambodian community, we um we had lost generations of artists during the Khmer Rouge during the 70s and this past decade i feel like our millennial generation or the second 1.5 to second generation of cambodian americans are starting to have their footprint back into the art and literary scene and so to see this loss and then there's two other losses in our community earlier this year due to covid was heartbreaking and i just found myself again in mourning um and as far as the pandemic has been you know i went from being a person who was always at community events Uh, i was very present around my friends and i was in la back in march uh, because i had gotten accepted into grad school and i was busy working on the second season i was kind of running on fumes and i just needed my own mental break even when there was kind of an ominous danger lurking ahead with the pandemic, but I felt like I just needed to get out of Illinois for a week. And so uh, I went to LA, but the funny part was, even when I was trying to give myself a break, I was putting up all these appointment dates with my friends. And I was like thinking to myself, I don't feel like I'm really giving myself <laughs> a real break. break. Yeah. Yeah. And I think halfway through, I went to the Britney Spears pop, Art museum, the pop up museum, mm-hmm. which was like, the which is fantastic. It was like a dream oh, and truth. It's like, um, it, yeah, <laughs> it was it was amazing. Uh, but that was the last fun thing I did before everything went to hell with the shutdown. And next thing you know, I was terrified. Uh, I was flying back. I had to stay at a motel because I have two elderly parents that I live with. Um, that I just moved back into a year before and I was afraid of me coming home and to be honest with you it was quite traumatic and I find myself going from a place where I was constantly on around people to to being more of a recluse and I think since then I've been very reclusive this year I have not been hanging out with friends I hardly see people and I've been purposely keeping myself safe and I think in a way it's been a blessing in disguise because I needed to just stop and focus on myself for a moment. I think that I was going at such a furious pace and I was at the risk of burning out uh, before I started school and I thought to myself well this is not going to be sustainable and I think as much as I really hate the pandemic having uh, to, to really force our hand. It allowed me time to focus on my schoolwork. It allowed me to better focus on the podcast and also having meaningful conversations with friends on zoom or on phone calls. And I think that, yeah, it gave me the kind of time that I needed. So, you know, here we are at the end of this year, just trying to, uh, to reflect and how can we reimagine what life would look like uh, once uh, the pandemic is over? So I think it's uh, it's going to be a culture shock. Um, I I've been perfectly content being in my room, you know, reading books instead of going to concerts, which I normally do. I um, love going to forest preserves. I've been working on my podcast, just happily working from home and with school. So I kind of like that life a lot more than I thought I would. So yeah, I think I've made the successful transition to being a recluse. And and one fun fact is that I share the same birthday as Prince. And so (laughs) I admire his ability to be very reclusive and appear out of nowhere, like, you know, make his Willy Wonka type appearances. And I've always kind of admired that. So I feel like I'm kind of channeling part of that energy that he has. I love like love it. He's very present on stage, but outside of it, you never hear from him. And when he makes an appearance, it comes out of nowhere. And I kind of want to be that person. So kind of come in as I choose and sit as I sit at ease.
0: It's, it's allowing us to see some parts of our lives that um, we, we've shifted a lot, right? Where we have become so automated, mechanical with a lot of the stuff that we put into our lives as if uh, we have to do some of these things to be happy, you know. I have to see friends, right, twice a week to be happy. I have to do these things. I have to exercise at the gym and do yoga. And, uh, you know, there's like so many things that we have taken from especially the productivity movement Right, where we're mastering ourselves through external means in the past decade. So I think now we're we're starting to understand that it's not about trying to master ourselves externally, but it's actually internally and understanding what we truly want and being okay with it and i think right now what people are realizing is the space that you have the reclusivity or non-reclusivity that it's okay <laughs> you know all these things are okay and as long as it brings you pleasure kindness to yourself understanding of yourself more that this is okay you know and i i love how we're also starting to see less judgment upon each other where before you know we're like oh if you have to be on zoom and everything has to be perfect you know business attire all that now people are just like it's fine like just just wear your two outfits you wear all week long <laughs> and yeah <laughs> you
1: know it's funny like i yeah. have not worn jeans since march <laughs> i just wear sweatpants my shorts or t-shirt and like i I like to dress up every now and then. Um, I don't know if you've seen my Instagram. Yes, uh, if very like,
0: flashy. I love yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> I,
1: I have, like, to tell your audience, like, I do, once in a while, like to dress up. I always have this fantasy that I would like to be invited to the Met Gala. It is, like, my dream bucket list.
0: Um, I love your outfits.
1: Yeah, and I, this whole year, I just have not gave a damn about what I wear, and I'm perfectly content. I hardly put any facial cream i mean i'm 37 years old so if i'm gonna age i'm gonna age. it's the things that you just learn to accept and yeah I, i think that there are things that we can let go of that we don't feel like we have to perform in front of the public
0: yeah something about that too right where it's we're just finally accepting us as us versus this performative external behavior like you said like face cream right like to be putting that on maybe some people put it on just specifically for the external impact that it has and it's just with a huge reckoning that we've finally been able to flip open you know the uh, manhole cover and just peer it into what is this sewer system that is us Mm. yeah Mm. and just curious just what what what's getting you through so what's, what's helping you? Is there any day-to-day thing that you do that's keeping you going, healthy, mentally healthy?
1: Yeah, I actually take my walks. I just go to parks and forest preserves when there's hardly anyone around. Um, I kind of like being around nature more often. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I used to go to a lot of concerts and shows. And I've been changing that over to just buying books. And I've been reading a lot of Asian American authors. Um, I'm currently reading uh, Fuk Tran's uh, Saigon book and it's his memoir and about his upbringing in uh, rural Pennsylvania. And I am just getting through this book and I absolutely am in love with his writing and, uh, and how it relates to my own experiences with assimilation diaspora during our appearance of refugee resettlement period after the Vietnam War. So I've been reading a lot of books lately. I've been working real hard on the, uh, the podcast. So that's given me a lot of drive to have conversations with people. Yeah, I have to admit, like I did not expect the, uh, the podcast to do what it's done for me on a personal level. It's given me more curiosity to learn about other people's work, uh, whether they're prolific or not. I've learned more about community work what they're doing on a national level outside of chicago and it's been a real blessing to you know work on it so and then you know, i'm going for my master's in nonprofit at the play university i just started school back in april and so i have enough to keep me busy and i think a lot of solitude has been very good to me definitely mm. for sure
0: yeah your plate is quite full and i just uh, give you props for just being able to juggle all of that and it's uh you know it's Especially as creators, I don't think we give credit to each other, but for anyone listening, it's a lot. It's just with, you know, just like even managing podcasts, the guests, like there's so many intricacies around just even getting someone to the mic. But even then, it's like, you know, now you're juggling school on top of, um, you're living working with family. full fam- time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Working full time and you're with home with family too. Right. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> and everyone with Asian parents know, like, <laughs> they they always want to be a part of our lives. But sometimes, uh, especially my mom, I, I I I know. I'm like, mommy, oh, I, I can't be at home with you and work because you 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 just wanna I be know. with me all the time. <laughs>
1: i know i can't force my reclusion on everyone i mean it's (laughs) it's hard because i'm stubborn i think i get this from that because when i want to be left alone i want to be left alone Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's kind of like i guess why i get so much of that divaness in me like the prince energy like i just want to be like where i just want to be the do not bother sign needs to come on you know and i think that when we work on these projects or things that we feel very strongly about it has a life of its own and it's just a matter of us how to manage that process and before it consumes us and before it really depletes us from continuing so it's a it's an everyday practice that i have to be mindful of and i'm sure that you are taking those steps as best (laughs) as you can
0: that's all we can do right yeah so i want to put a name out and just wanted to learn a lot more you mentioned her in your bio but just wanted to understand who is Ada Chang
1: ah who is she so you know Ada is kind of like um I think I gave her this uh I gave her this nickname I called her like my version of Master Splinter from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and I'm like (laughs) Raphael who's like the stubborn grumpy (laughs) but uh, and very hard-headed. He's like one of my favorite Ninja Turtles because I relate to him on that level. (laughs) Um, But Ada, I knew her back in 2016 when uh, we both performed uh, as storytellers and this was my first time storytelling at a queer, um, it was an LGBTQ uh, storytelling show up in the Chicago Andersonville neighborhood which is predominantly a very queer uh, space. I remember it was right after about a week uh, from the Pulse uh, massacre. And I remembered not feeling up to par to tell my story because I was already feeling a lot of this loss, this grief and this anger I was having from the shooting. And I was actually very close to backing out of that show just because I did not feel compelled to share my story. I felt like what I was writing did not feel relevant to what I was feeling at this point. But somehow I decided I'm just gonna go for it. I might need the space. It might help me. And I remembered hearing her story when she talked about the the hate crime she experienced when she was in Texas 20 years ago, and and it was very powerful. I mean, it really made me realize, that, wow, this is a she's got a very interesting story to share. But what I learned about her in the intro was that. She had worked for DePaul University as a tenure professor for 15 years and then decided that this wasn't for her. She decided to quit so she could pursue theater in her fifties. That is a very bossy move. And I think hearing that was like, "Wow, I need to know this person. And so we connected and I had her perform her solo storytelling show at the National Cambodian Heritage Museum, which I became a board member. And I wanted her to, you know, bring her stories to our space and to teach a lot of our Cambodian Americans to tell their stories for the first time. Because it was around the time that we were working on the candlelight vigil for the Day of Remembrance to honor those who were lost during the Khmer Rouge genocide. What made me think about it was there was a person who spoke in the podium over in Seattle because we were partnering with another Cambodian-American community over in Seattle and with Long Beach. And, you know, she spoke how her mom had just passed away and that she'll never be able to hear the stories of her mom and ask the questions that she needed to hear. And for me, that hit me very, very hard. And I think I told Ada, I was like, I need you to see if you can come into our space and see if you can, help initiate these storytelling uh, among our communities. So I felt that that was very important. And also, also it was important for me to start sharing my stories too about my own family, about my own history. So yeah, we created um, a, a friendship and she became a mentor uh, to me. Uh, she has, you know, um, worked with me, given me a lot of critical feedback, uh, which not many people would always have the guts to do. And, you know, she, has given me the opportunity to help her co-produce and co-host the Talk Stories, Asian-American, Asian diaspora storytelling show, which has been going on for the past, I'd say, three years. And I got on it after um, she uh, uh, replaced uh, her uh, co-producer and I, you know, took on that opportunity. This was a show that she had founded like months before that. and. Um and it's been a good partnership, but you know what was really important was that I learned about the fact that that how she works with storytellers is about not getting entertainment from them but to get into their vulnerability to get into their into their history, and to be able to do so with agency and to do so with the idea that our stories do matter and it deserves a voice rather than having our stories be told by white researchers, journalists, people who do not have the emotional connection to it. And I think that was very important to me. This is why I've always been a fan of her work. So um, but yeah, and because of talk stories, it actually allowed me to start my own podcast uh, about a year ago and Ada and I would always do our debriefs after so. Uh, we go to an IHOP and one day she told me, Randy, I need you to be independent. I have been mentoring you and at this point, I need you to learn how to find your own because I'm not going to mentor you so that you can work for me or that I can keep you. I need you to, I don't mentor you so that yes, I, that I can keep you, but that I can finally uh, help you make your own path. And at that time, I had not thought of what I really wanted to do. Um, I, really wasn't sure of what my platform is what am i going to commit to i wasn't sure of what was going to work for me and it wasn't until i came on to what was then the Asian project now known as the queer asian social club i don't know if you heard of them but it's my already who runs it so i got on her show and we had this wonderful uh conversation and at that time i was also promoting talk stories and afterwards i thought to myself you know, I really like this podcast platform a lot. And then I started listening to podcast, API podcasts like self-evident Asian American stories and the Vietnamese Book People podcasts, which I really gravitated towards. And I thought to myself, well, there's a platform I think I can really handle. There's a lot that I want to ask. I remember being in college, I wanted to be a journalist. And I never allowed that to come to fruition. There were things that I was quite curious about within our own community. Um, There are people that I've known for several years, uh, being in community organizing, being in the Cambodian-American community, being in the Vietnamese spaces, that I felt like I needed to hear more from on a more intimate level. So I created the Bun Mi Chronicles podcast out of that. And um, so Bun Mi Chronicles was named because it was the first uh, Vietnamese food that I embraced. And because it was Western, enough because when you are a young kid in a predominantly white community you're telling your you're begging your mom to make you sandwiches and to give you the real
0: the white bread bologna literally yeah Yeah,
1: literally um and not to make food that i would normally eat at home and so the Bunby sandwiches were like a compromise for me because the Bunby is french inspired um because France colonized uh, uh, Southeast Asia for for generations. And so, yeah, I, I named it as a way of understanding my own upbringing as a person who was trying to compromise between my parents' culture and the culture that I had to assimilate into. And I felt like, you know, my generation, the voices that I'm talking to, are very much the people who lived through those uh, experiences. Um, And I think part of it also was inspired by that earlier talk that I mentioned of how we need to start sharing our stories, especially um, before our elders, our parents, our grandparents are gone. And I think there's something that's very powerful about it because we are at the position that we can start to not only have a seat at the table, but to create our own table and that we are not having to just be in survival while their parents were you know as we were trying to assembly but really to to redefine reimagine ourselves as people with impact um, people with the ability to change our society for the better in america and i think that is really powerful rather than being the silent uh quote-unquote monolithic uh, stereotype that we've been branded into, uh, this is a time where we can literally cut that apart and tell our own damn stories and not uh, let it be dictated by those that have no experience with it and sharing it without our consent. So I felt that was the purpose of driving that podcast. So yeah, I, I, I look back and I thank Ada for, you know, giving me that push that I really needed, but also the other API podcasters that I just mentioned. For really uh, fronting that work and giving us the conversation that we need, and that it takes more than just one podcaster, one journalist, uh, one YouTuber. It takes a community. It takes a collective community to bring that to the forefront.
0: Curious, just f- working with Ada, and as you talk about the w- the really important thing that she asks. People to explore deeper is their story. I'm just wondering, is there a process that she has that she worked on with you where she was able to go deeper into the story? Because uh, just to add a little bit of context, I think sometimes we can talk about our story and make it seem so. Um, it's like the Cliff Note version, the successful Cliff Note version, right? Where we talk about all the successes that we've done and that's that's it you know highlighting it Uh, but through exploration of my work through the podcast and everything else I do there's just so much more reality and more humbleness humility talking about the stories that we're afraid of and I'm just curious is there just working with her or just even your process with her is there just anything that's come out of that that helps other people to go deeper into their stories
1: it's a good question and i don't think i really want to speak for ada on this part i just but i will say if i have to give you my experience um i'd say that you know in working with her and and also learning about myself is that you have to confront the hard parts of your life in order to tell your own story to liberate yourself right and um and i think as i mentioned earlier like one thing that she always told me is that don't do things for entertainment do it out of a need do it out of a way to liberate yourself do it as a way to to be comfortable with your own vulnerability and to take ownership of that uh I, again i don't want to like you know mix her words here so i apologize ada if i you know uh if, if i kind of zigzag around here a bit but no i think that uh that's something i always think about and you know there are times when she'll remind me like don't get too caught up in celebrity culture do not uh just think about your mission think about what you really want to uplift who you really want to bring to the forefront because um like we both were in a storytelling scene together and we were performing in front of a lot of white spaces. And to be honest with you, like my, my frustrations after coming from these spaces was I was telling stories about certain traumas in my life. And then the next person who would go, come up, a white person comes up, a middle-aged white man we're we'll always talk about shitty dating experiences. And I'm just thinking to myself, why am I sitting here with these people who don't really have stories to tell? and they're just telling them in a way that doesn't feel authentic. It's like they're hiding the vulnerability, but they just don't have the experiences. And and I also find myself being like the only Asian there, or there's only one Black person there. There's only one Latinx person there. So there was a lot of tokenizing in these spaces. And, you know, these storytelling spaces talk about, not just storytelling, but in theater spaces and other institutions bring on folks who are, talking about diversity and inclusion, but where's the equity? Where's the dismantling of tokenization? Like, uh, why are we seeing the same Asian person at every show? Why are we seeing the same Latinx person at every show? I mean, this is something that that we both have seen. And what can we do to reimagine ourselves create better spaces for it so i mean for myself i'm still learning that practice with my own podcast i don't think i've completely gotten there but i certainly keep that as a reminder um certainly something that you know she's been doing a lot with her own shows so yeah um but i would definitely encourage you to check her out at the Renegade cheng over on facebook if you can or on instagram i think that she continues to really inspire many people like myself to do better but to also challenge ourselves to go out of our own comfort zone
0: mm. the aspect of inclusion ends up turning very performative sometimes where we oh, yeah. whitewash what we say yeah. or even just if we have a very diverse group of people sometimes we wash out the specific nuances of our stories uh, in doing so uh, to be overly inclusive right sometimes, and this is why safe spaces that may be exclusionary in nature are very powerful to allow people the permission to go into these deep stories and i I you know where I see it is it's trying to come from a good place right where we're trying to accommodate all these people. But at the end of the day, we have a lot of other traumas, a lot of other other things that we haven't explored yet, and it's a balance, right? Sure, we can have some of these spaces to bring in some of the white folks or whoever other folks, right, who want to be invested in our stories, but even for ourselves, then we have to ask ourselves, okay, but am I giving myself the space for these other aspects of my stories, you know? the 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 specific nuances about being Asian, but even more than being Asian, right? Like the nuances of my ethnicity, my culture, my community. Am I giving that the space that it deserves? And uh, it's a balance, you know. It's a it's a balance, and when one teeter more than the other, that's when we feel this frustration and this anxiety.
1: It it does, yeah. You pointed that out, and I and I will say one thing that I like. I'll confess, I hate the hashtag representation matters. I'll, I'll tell you why, because I feel like, well, does it solve tokenization? Does it solve inequity issues in theater spaces? Because you get actors or comedians that will that will jump to the front of the line, but who are you bringing with along the way? And I question that because um, I, I'm going to be very careful how. You, Stretch into this territory but but i do think that there is a responsibility on our end because we have been our voices have been silent for so long but we can't be the only ones doing it we can't be speaking for a large group of asian americans because one we're not a monolith and it just pigeons holds us into a single story narrative I, i don't think that um is ever a good way of bringing it out especially if you're working within these white institutions uh, that have been gatekeeping uh, uh, stories and movies and and other forms of entertainment tools so I I think that when I hear the word representation matters but for whom and who are you bringing along to the table so I think about that a lot uh on a deeper level I've had this conversation with several of my friends because it it kind of annoys me because yes Crazy Rich Asians is a global box well uh, definitely a domestic box office hit But where is the Southeast Asian uh, people in there? Where are the uh, Pacific Islanders? I think it's great that it's um that it did well and that it opened up a whole new avenue. But the question is, okay, but are we going to repeat the same parts of our history? Are we gonna keep duplicating that kind of success? Like is this as this kind of mantle of success? You know, can we have other other different API stories along the way that should be valued and that does not have to be tagged with whether a successful box office hit or not
0: Mm. a lot of people want this performative activism performative inclusivity uh to to get a pat on the back right it's a yep diversity checked it off yep inclusivity checked it off but it's not something that's black and white like that too and when we think of it as a black and white solution, it's just so tough to then, you know, keep the conversation going. And I, I think it starts somewhere, right? Where we we have to start decoupling away from having these cele- these Asian celebrities that are in every single movie and we're able to now say, okay, Great, diverse, right? And it has to start somewhere where either the celebrity, director, whoever it may be, gives a platform to somebody who may not have had it before. We see this with especially trans actors, right? That's where you have your certain set, right? It's like four or five of them, and they're in every trans role. <laughs> right um and And played
1: by (laughs) cis people and it's like no this is not yeah this is not the way you tell their stories this is not the Mm, this is not representative of a whole community and it's a it's a hard practice to put in but it's certainly worth the effort it's certainly worth having to take pauses before you can advance also what about board members what about uh writers what about what about those folks who are behind the scenes uh, doing this work too? Like, what is this being written? I mean, you look at Mulan, the non-animated uh, feature recently, and think about who was behind the scenes. and It was and an entire
0: was white ca- like white cast of writers, white cast of directors, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's why representation ain't enough, you know, because there's a lot that's hidden that y'all are keeping away from. So, you know, white people, we see you. <laughs> see what's going on behind scenes you can't
0: hide yeah. from us. <laughs> yeah. And the way I like to describe it is diversity is very different from inclusion, right? If we truly talk about inclusion, diversity is, yes, you can have statistical diversity with different people, right? Number wise. Diversity is like the what, right? And inclusion for me is like the how. How are you giving people this space? How are you giving the platform? How are you giving them the voice? And it's not one is better than the other they're both important but if we don't focus on both separately then we end up over indexing so much on for example diversity and all we care about are number number numbers right right yeah yeah and so i want to dive in a little bit about so we're talking about stories and the importance of stories i want to talk about your story too and just want to understand how did you come to be what was your life like before you got into all of this work
1: well um so i grew up with i grew up in the chicagoland area i i was born in a town uh, lyle illinois which is like about 40 minutes west of chicago and i lived in westmont starting at five years old and into my adult years and i just moved back uh, a year ago to watch over my parents Now, um, my dad is a survivor of the Khmer Rouge. He was born in Vietnam during the time of the war, and he had served in the army at the time and then got transferred over to Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia and was serving as a translator for the U.S. Embassy at that time before um, the U.S. um, uh, fled uh, Cambodia and which led to the Uh, khmer rouge control which would end up killing over two million cambodians and he survived um he survived that uh, which is a miracle in of itself and for my mom you know they were uh well her her and her family were raised in vietnam and during the time of the vietnam war and they both uh escaped and my parents met in america in uh, illinois and so I was the first one born um, on both sides of my family in America. So I think as I grew up, uh, it, it was a really confusing set of circumstances for me because I had two younger brothers that were twin. They're twins, and they're three years, about three years younger than me. And um, I was a very shy kid, and I had three three or four languages actually thrown at me at a really young age, and I was never able to grasp any of them. It was Khmer, it was Vietnamese, English, and even Spanish, uh, because my parents had left me with a babysitter uh, who spoke Spanish. And it was a lovely old uh, grandma that um, you know, took care of me when I was a baby. So I had four languages by the time I hit kindergarten, and I really could not I really couldn't. I was very terrified as a kid growing up, and, and I was also the only one of two Asian kids, and I really stood up because I was tall. I was a very tall kid um, in my class, and, and I just felt like I wanted to um, cry out of defense. If someone said anything to me, I would cry into a corner because I was scared. I did not know what I was going into, and and I think, you know, my parents were always working and trying to survive and make uh, make, make do's, uh, considering that what they had escaped from was very traumatic, but yet they never had time to heal. As many refugees who come to the United States never had the opportunity to do so. And uh, yeah, and then I, you know, was pressured to do well in school, to perform academically, to learn English, be proficient at it. And and if I didn't, it was met with punishment from my dad and it was very hurtful, um, you know, growing up. And I think it really impacted my relationship with my dad for so many years because he had his own sort of trauma that he could never um, heal from. And then having to deal with the another set of trauma from the refugee resettlement is another for him. I mean, he was a very smart man. I mean, he spoke English pretty well Um, by the time he got to the US and uh, but he was working as a metal welder, which Mm -hmm. was not what he wanted to do. Um, It felt too beneath him. And I think it really created a lot of his own bitterness and also. You know, I was reading Fu Tran's uh, memoir and there was one part of the book where his uh, father would um, talk about how he would get made fun of at work for not being able to pronounce words, like the word teeth and tit, <laughs> you know, and he would say tit instead of teeth and coworkers would just laugh at him like hysterically. And I kind of wonder if my dad went through that too at work, because I think that there was some of that that went through. Um, and I, i'm reading that book I was it just brought back certain memories that you know mm. my dad's own anger that he had uh mm. towards us you know when it was whether it was provoked or not and most of it was unprovoked there were certain yeah. triggers that just just came out of nowhere where he would get very verbally aggressive to me and my family and and i think sometimes um as i got older i carried uh part of that at least part of that with me where i felt this this anger this distrust of people that my dad had so it kind of carried on um but yeah and i think uh you know growing up in a very predominantly white suburb it was a challenge uh because i felt i did not have a community of vietnamese and cambodian folks to talk to and if i did it felt like I was competing against my other peers because it was competing against them academically. Um, you know, who's got better grades? Mm. And that did not make it any easier for me to be close with any of them growing up. And also, they were more well off than my parents were. I mean, my parents were middle class, we were living a decent life. But some of their friends were doing better. And I think it really grated on my dad. It really grated on him because he felt that he deserved to be in that position and that he wanted that he wanted what they have his kids to have that same level of academic things that they have so yeah it, it it really it really damaged a lot of my relationships it damaged my relationship with him for a, such a very long time and and i'd say um you know from my mom I, I mean she was working very hard and. You know she was trying to make ends meet and yeah i think that you know growing up as a teenager i felt like this confused kid that did not know what he wanted to accomplish uh what he wanted to do like i had no interest in being a doctor i didn't think i was smart enough to be an engineer i wasn't articulated enough to be a lawyer i did not have that drive that says yes this is what i'm going to do and i couldn't and it did not help that I was starting to come into my own, into my own internal confrontations with queerness, uh, at that age too. Like I grew up in the nineties and towards the end of the nineties, uh, it was like that in the aftermath of the AIDS crisis. And, you know, when I was thinking about my own sexuality, it was a real challenge because I, um, I saw myself wanting to be normal and what I saw about queerness did not look normal to me. I would watch Jerry Springer, Mori Povich, and it would show people who were gay, but they were very flamboyant over the top. And I kind of found that to be very repulsive because that wasn't who I was. I'm like thinking to myself, I kind of think I might like men and boys, and but yet I did not feel like I am one of them because I can't be them. I, that's not who I am. So. I was very really much disavowing my own identity that I could not walk away from. And I think it really, in a way, messed me up. Uh, my parents certainly would not have accepted the idea. And and I remembered, and maybe in junior high school, I started listening to Madonna. And I grew up a huge fan of her work. And Janet Jackson and Mariah Carey, those were like your um, creme de la creme of divas. Uh, and i saw uh the madonna in vma where when she did vogue when she was like dressed up in the uh the victorian era and there was donna Delory who was in her asian backup singer and uh uh kevin steel who was her uh who was uh an asian backup dancer who i absolutely adored but i saw those two i was like wow there's asian people that i can actually see in a madonna video when she was at the zenith of her career and i couldn't see people like them in a queer space so i thought that was really cool but i remembered as i was listening to her my younger brothers were like teasing me about listening to her like you know, listening to madonna is very gay you know you listen to her and they kind of mocked it yeah. and it was a lot of yeah. shaming from them even though they were younger but it really embarrassed me but yet i still felt the need to continue to listen to them so it's something told me that, yeah, I couldn't easily walk away from it, but it, w- it was terrifying. Um, I mean, even my classmates expressed a lot of homophobia very openly. Uh, yeah, I remembered uh, uh, when Matthew Shepard was murdered at the end of the 90s and my English teacher decided to bring that conversation up. And then all of a sudden, you know, you had certain students express a lot of vitriolic Things about his death, and here I was, as an Asian kid, as a guy who was already in the closet, thinking to myself, "I don't feel safe at all." It just internalized my own fear, and my my English teacher did nothing to stop that. She could not control the class, and that told me uh, that this is not a safe place. And B, I carried a grudge with that teacher because I thought that she opened up a Pandora's box that I really wish was not open and that she could not put back. So yeah, that was um I know I'm kind of going into a long lifelong story here. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. 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 And I think um um I will say like into my early twenties I really wasn't dating. Um I was not comfortable dating. This was before grinder, this was before Tinder. Um I kind of was in my own bubble, uh, really, and even uh, in college, I really wasn't making myself that close to people.
0: Um, yeah. And when did you, when did level. you come out? Was it? Well, later on?
1: it's interesting. Like, I think I have like two or three different phases where I did come out. It, it feels like they're kind of like in different errors. So i feel like i mm. came out three or four
0: different times but i'd say <laughs> it's very typical
1: yeah yeah no i think the first time i came out to my friend at 20 you know he was bringing it up and then um he seemed to be cool with it but i was not going to you know make myself out to everyone else and then my best friend who was white uh, he came out as gay and i think it was like 23 24 years old at that time and to be honest with you that was a very jolting shock for me because I was not ready for that um he um, i I when I look back on it, everyone would have thought like if you if you were telling someone that you're gay, the reaction would be to fully embrace and say, "Hey, you know, you're part of us still, regardless, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Well, my reaction was kind of the opposite. Mm. I really had a hard time handling it because it' wasn't so much that he was gay. It was also also the fact that I could not confront my own shit
0: yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah.
1: And and at the same time I was also kind of developing feelings for him mm. at the time too. And he had a boyfriend, which I did not like at all. So I was kinda of mm. like and I think his relationship at that time was quite toxic. Um I don't want to get too into detail, but I will say that I was like the Solange <laughs> and my best friend yeah. was the I was actually, I was more like the Solange in that relationship. I was like the third person where I just wanted to go after his uh, toxic ex-boyfriend. So it it was a lot of drama, I can tell you that. But I, I also thought about what is coming out did because I did not see, I was not around other Asian and BIPOC queer trans folks. I was not around, I did not have that community because his white, gay friends or people that i could not relate to and i just felt like in a way isolated and i think it, it made me grow resentful of him and in fact it was really more of a resentment towards myself um but yeah we did have a falling out for a few years because of that i mean i, I just became very toxic to be around but yeah i did came out in a way that that forced my hand um and it was not my uh it was he was able to be accepted by his family i really couldn't say the same for myself and i had no other queer home near me that i could say uh, this is also my home too and that and that really you know and i think i came out around that time but very begrudgingly. i must i might add and and i uh at 25 i moved over to korea to teach english like right during the time of the economic crisis. Um, And as much as fun as I've had in those three years, um, which really was a very fun time for me, but I was also quite lonely because I had to put myself yet again in the closet uh, because I was teaching at an all boys middle school in a time where, you know, people were not out. Um, Those hidden spaces were hidden for a reason. Um, The online community was very minimal there. Um, Again, this was 2009, 2012. This was before, again, Grindr. This was before Tinder. This was before any of these social media apps have taken over and I felt kind of isolated as well. And also I lived in the neighborhood that my students lived in. So I was not going to get myself caught in any situation. So yeah, for those three years in my mid mid to late 20s, I was again back into the closet once more and it wasn't until you know my mom's uh, stroke when I came back from Korea. Like the day I was on my flight and my mom had a stroke and luckily she had survived. But um but yeah, many years before that she had told me if she knew that I was gay, she would have a heart attack. And that kind of in a way just um uh, messed me up or I felt like I'm I'm afraid to tell her that because I'm afraid that by telling her it would give her a death now that I was not wanting to happen. So um, I moved out um, to the city of Chicago and found an amazing queer home, Asian queer LGBTQIA group called I2I. And they were such a wonderful community. I met some amazing friends that understood what I was dealing with um and i think what it was the more important about it is it the space was intersectional and that was the first time i heard the word intersectionality what it meant to be both queer and asian and what does that mean for us there's a different narrative that you don't often see uh in mainstream media you don't read that in the books but but having these kinds of spaces radicalized me politically and also on an individual level it made me want to reimagine a world where our identities and experiences also uh deserve a voice and it deserves uh, a place in our own history and that we have to be the ones uh documenting this so yeah i think to make the long journey short but yeah i'm here i am at 37 and a really good learning experience for me but it's also been um a journey that i've continued to heal myself from from my childhood to my 20s because yeah uh, as you get older it becomes well but i hope for everyone it becomes uh a time of unlearning and to relearn and to center your healing through that
0: Oh, that was that was so powerful. And so many things that you mentioned throughout your story, I, I resonated so much with. Um, uh, you know, the first thing was just uh, the television, you know, watching Maury and the representation of queer people. And the power of media is so strong in both direction, right? Where if they bring on other people and ridicule them, people take those identities up and they they think that is the normal course of action and also so much compassion for your English teacher that tried to bring this up and um you know it's it was just not fruitful and um it's it's just you know I, I I look back in my life too and Uh, where I had so much rage and so much anger, I've started to understand a lot more. And with more understanding, compassion flows through. And um, even, you know, some of the people who weren't great to me growing up. And it's, uh, it's this understanding that trauma is cyclical, you know. And even for your father, just even for, you know, most asian american experiences where their parents were immigrants from very tumultuous environments carry with them this desire for their children to do better and the translation of it isn't really what we expect i mean it's multi-layered right where it's we see our white friends be treated a certain way and we yearn for that we think that that is the best but we also don't take into consideration that their parents didn't come about through, you know, war or famine or poverty to such a degree from some, like, many Asian countries. Um, and, and so our interpretation of it is, oh, like, you know, <laughs> like, this isn't what I want. This is terrible. Um, and then our parents, right? Uh, they they have children in america that they're trying to give such a better life to and then their children just doesn't appreciate or want any of their culture and it's not due to them but they don't know that right they they think it's just their children and it's again this like multiple 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 layers of trauma from so many different angles and for a lot of people who realize it, they go oh I was so bad to my family or, oh, I was so bad to my children. And what I say is, you know, we're all learning. We're all learning how to process this collective, collective, collective. Yeah.
1: Trend. Yeah. You know what I was thinking yeah. about, mm-hmm. Stephen? Uh, yeah. Like I was telling this to um, to a group of uh, other API colleagues of mine and yeah. they shared something that was very powerful. Well, yeah. they asked, they, they, I think they were struggling with how to um talk to their parents about healing uh, about their own stories and and i think one of the hardest challenges that when we experience trauma from them but then as they get older they also need healing and that we are the ones to help provide healing for them but the problem is it's very hard to do so when we have been harmed by them in a way and then we also are still not healing or we haven't healed From ourselves from the pain that we've experienced so it's it's hard to provide the healing when we ourselves have not uh, been healed uh, from our parents so it's it's uh it's some serious confrontations that we have to uh, be up against
0: and it's asking ourselves right an honest look at ourselves to inquire about how much bandwidth we have how much energy we have and the, the smart way is really taking a look within ourselves and understanding how much space we have. And sometimes it takes trial and error, right? Someone pushes you into a corner. You obviously know now, like, I don't want to be in that position, right? But you may have come into it with good intention. And so it's it's understanding when do you feel expired? When do you feel like you don't have any more energy to carry through? Yeah. And then finding that balance of, okay, well, I have this much that I can provide. Okay. I will engage in a conversation. Maybe it's not in a conversation physically, right? It's over the phone where then you can shut down and say, okay, you know, I have to go now. I have other things. Let's continue elsewhere and set these boundaries for yourself. And especially for people who are very empathetic or who are healers you know or who want to be there for other people it's very easy to lose yourself and lose your boundaries and um you know a lot of people who are empathetic judge themselves oh i wish i could be more empathetic i wish i can but it's one of those things where it's a muscle you know it's you have to practice it you have to be able to understand it the muscle of empathy within ourselves and how it can react act so that we can use it more intelligently. It's like at the gym, right? Like we're all built very differently and we can't just run a mile off the bat having no exercise at the same time. Right. Some people can run longer distances for a while. Some people can sprint and some people it's a slower walk and slower pace, but they just do it for enjoyment. Right. And so as a part of this exploration of how do we show up for other people, maybe not just for our parents, but how do we show up for our community, our friends, and everyone around us, it starts with us. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's, we're all on this collective journey, and um, every every little bit counts too. And I always remind people that of just don't judge yourself for not being so perfect healing everyone you know the next mother teresa but if we all contributed just a little bit how much better would the world be right yeah
1: absolutely yeah that comes when we center our healing it, that's that, that is a a big part of that work it's it's not easy work to do it's but but when we when we are good to ourselves then we can be good to other people then we can be useful to ourselves and to to our connection with our community and this can really do wonders when we are all good to ourselves when we center our self-care and to understand our boundaries what our limits are that's not an easy thing to do especially when we get so passionate about the work that we do and then you forget to turn off the off button
0: for a moment yes yeah yeah exactly and you know as we're talking about community now just bring it back to your work in your podcast and um the, the the space that you've been able to create uh well before i before i dive in deeper you know i just want to give you an opportunity just you know i know you talked about very lightly of like you know what Bon Me chronicles is but um if you had a little bit more time now just to like describe like what is your mission with it and but just in your words like what is banh chronicles
1: yeah when i started doing the first season i wanted to interview folk, folks more locally before i would you know dive into the national end of it mm-hmm. um because i look back on our history the things that we were not taught in schools. We were not taught about who Grace Lee Boggs was. We weren't taught about who uh Coach Yama and Fred Korematsu were. We weren't taught about Helen Zia. We weren't taught about Vincent Chin, who was brutally murdered in a white supremacist act in <clears throat> Detroit. So we weren't taught about Asian American people as uplifters. We weren't, we were taught about Asian Americans as tragedy stories, Asians as tragedy stories, like the Vietnam War, the Korean War, if we were even taught that, um, glossing over the Japanese incarceration, the Chinese immigrants who came in the nineteenth century. So, we were taught things that were not especially kind to our community. Community. What I really wanted to capture this time was the conversations that I've had with other. Asian community activists that I've known for a few years uh, from Asians American Advancing Justice in Chicago. There's the Cambodian Association of Illinois and the Cambodian Museum, which I am now a board member for in the past few years, working with other Asian American community spaces in Chicago. It made me think of, well, we need to start making sure we document that work, but uh, also learn the blueprints of what that work means because we have young folks that are coming up they're starting to learn about their history that want to know more about their identities because growing up i did not have many people that i could really look up to i think the only person as i mentioned like you know with madonna's backup singer being one of them i think that made a huge impact on me as a queer person it made me realize that you know maybe this is kind of cool maybe this is something that i can learn to accept one day. Uh, Linda Yu, who was an Asian-American uh, anchorwoman in Chicago uh, for ABC7, seeing her face made me want to become a journalist. Um, and so mirrors do matter. And I think you know, having a podcast it's a is an important platform where we can bring the voices of our community members to share the work that they're doing to share the work that they are doing to fight against white supremacy anti-black racism and other forms of anti-asian racism that we have experienced and to see ourselves doing important work um the other day my brother um told me that he gets frustrated when he doesn't see asian americans not doing anything and i said well no i will challenge you on that because there are many folks that are doing some important work on the immigration front lines as lawyers mm-hmm. as educators uh whether they're in college or k-12 there are elected officials on a local and state level that we are uh, that we don't hear enough about but are doing important work so the problem is that there's not a lot of equity at the moment in mainstream media, and I think that is changing. But what's more important is that we have to create our own spaces so that way we can deliver that history, to deliver what is happening in our community to these communities. So, you know, for me, it's a, it was a mission to interview folks who have been doing the work, but also how to uh, share this work with other folks who are interested in, in um, becoming Uh, a part of this work too. So I keep thinking to myself when I did this podcast, what would my 15-year-old self want to hear? What would my 20-year-old self want to hear? What would my 30-year-old version want to hear? So I I look at when I do a podcast, what would my young self want to listen to? When I do the show, as I was interviewing more folks uh, nationally, yeah, I was able to interview people like Viet Thanh Nguyen and Kathy Park Hong, who I value tremendously as prolific writers, but I also keep thinking to myself, I don't want this to be a show just about getting higher names now that I've got them. This is really about collecting a multitude of different personalities, people with different experiences, uh, but are still waking up and doing important work and have important stories that need to be told that dismantles this whole single story narrative of asian americans i mean we're not all tragic figures in our stories here i mean we have things to celebrate we have things that we can really um amplify so yeah i I think just looking through this whole work it's it's been a blessing to talk with folks who have these stories to share um yeah the first season i was talking with Local folks around Chicago, and then you know, second season, and I will still continue to interview folks around the Chicagoland area. That's not going to go away. But, but the second season I was doing one on the year nineteen seventy-five, which I interviewed several Southeast Asian guests in relation to the mass migration after you know the Khmer Rouge, the end of the Vietnam and Laos civil wars. So I thought that was very important to bring that out to purpose Third season. Um, I think was a challenge because it came right after george floyd's murder and i kept thinking to myself well we also have to confront anti-blackness in our community colorism in our community anti-asian racism that we experienced in the upcoming election so i think doing that third season during the summer was very exhausting for me um because i was in a very angry place but i also felt that we really got to have serious discussions about where we are at as an Asian American community where we are both the oppressors and the oppressed so how do we uh how do we confront that how do we uh have conversations with our own community members that we disagree with so it it certainly has its, um, it certainly was a challenge uh working on it because of the required the the amount of labor that it took and also wanting to address these issues in a way that is productive and that I hope can really make people think about them on a more clearer level and what they want to do among their families and among their community and their colleagues. And and then, you know, right now I'm working on the fourth season, which is in a, in a way kind of continuing that. It's um it's called uh, process and process is kind of like the aftermath of the election and the pandemic and how are we Still processing our own journey and it's not just related to those two specific topics but it's really our own journey as we continue to heal and unlearn and what are we um taking away from certain events in our life that really traumatized us or really impacted us and how are we implementing and how are we learning from these experiences as part of our process so um i'm looking forward to that fourth season that's going to be at least 10 to 11 episodes i promised myself i usually cut it to 10 episodes by somehow drag it along just another episode <laughs> or two so i'm not
0: gonna
1: uh, think to myself but uh, I, I get in trouble doing that so but yeah
0: that sounds awesome and i love the way you've organically started to create these chapters of discussions and i uh, you know I'm actually the most appreciative of you giving Southeast Asian representation on your platform. And uh, a lot of Asian narratives is really centered around East Asian identities and the opportunity to bring light to even some of the really, really horrendous things that had taken place, especially in Southeast Asia, is so important. This is you know, history is not just what we want to uh, highlight of the successes, but it's also to highlight some of the stuff that weren't proud moments for our world. And um, hopefully that can help future generations. I know some people are forgetting like the Holocaust happened, but um, it's, it's um, you know, people say history repeats itself. And I think it's because people don't listen and pay attention to some of the stuff that was really hard to listen to.
1: And also what's been kept away from us too. I mean, that is uh, very important. I think when we learn about our history, we know ourselves better. We don't think about the Chinese immigrants and the Indian immigrants who helped pave the way for our society. And with the railroads, for example, and that it gets credited to white people. We don't think about contributions that Asian Americans have given to this country, and yet it gets discredited or credited by white people. And I think that is very harmful to how we see ourselves in society. Like, if I had known who these historical figures are at an early age, my gosh. The Life impact would have been so different. Have, yeah. The impact that it would have on me, The fact that I would not go around my teenagers hating myself. Mm. Right. Um, So there's impact when you see ourselves in other institutions and other arts that have not been accessible to us. Like, why do our parents push us to go into the STEM field? because they see visibility in that field. But why can't we be in entertainment, media, or teaching arts? Those are areas that were never really accessible to us for a long time. But yet, even though we've had many of them in these spaces. So yeah, I think that this is a moment where we, can, that we are challenging that status quo and I hope that we continue to hammer away at it. I
0: just wanna ask you, you know—where where do we go from here as mm-hmm. a community?
1: I think we have to go backwards. We have to uncover our history, our history, and our history, hold the curtain slowly because that will reveal more about ourselves and the blueprint that we need to have in order for us to the pause for our future. Because if we don't know our history, what are we giving to our younger generations, whether we're parents, uncles, mentors, I think that's very important to think about. And that's why I did the 45 year anniversary, because I needed to get the stories of not just of our parents and our grandparents, our aunts and uncles who were affected by colonial terror, um, but also to bring our stories of our own past into it. Uh, because our history needs to be told as well. You know, the refugee resettlement was a whole nother issue. We have deportation issues that are happening in our community. We have issues on mental health, gang violence, uh, things that go away from the model minority myth. So confronting that is our way to create a clear path and to recognize what to do with all these symptoms that we've been carrying for so long and what is the I don't want to say the word cure because I don't think everything is an easy fix, but what is the way to heal from, from these uh, levels of trauma that we've been carrying from generation to generation and how do we stop that cycle and how do we reverse those patterns? So yeah, that's what I would say moving forward is also move backwards.
0: Mm, Wow. That's beautiful. (laughs) That is beautiful. And, uh, as we wrap up, where can our audience find you?
1: Sure, you can follow me on the on my Instagram at bun, B-A-N-H-M-I underscore chronicles, and you can follow my page at the uh, the Bunmi Chronicles. You can look that one up, and I do have a Twitter page I don't use very often. You can follow me at mi underscore chronicles so yeah that's where you can find me so you can listen to my podcast (laughs) pretty much anywhere (laughs) don't forget to listen (laughs) listen to the barman chronicles show on your spotify apple Podcasts, amazon music wherever you get your uh, uh podcasts
0: yes 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 and are there any episodes that you would recommend uh newcomers uh, oh to,
1: God, yeah. you're really because like picking my own favorite child because I love all of them. I'm gonna say this very, I would say definitely tune into the fourth season that I'm gonna have out. um But I, if I have to pick one, who? Gosh,
0: I can't it could to be a couple, like two.
1: I, I will say yeah. that I really enjoyed my interview. My last episode I did with Milk M I L C K. I don't know if you've heard of her. She went. Um, she went viral when she did the song, I Can't Keep Quiet during the Women's March a couple of years ago, and she had been releasing just amazing music. I, I'm a huge fan of her work. And um, the story about her was I invited her to come on to be a guest back in, I got to say like late May. And I did not hear from her until like August. I was thinking, okay, there's no <laughs> way she's going to get on. Um, just let that go. I was already on my third piece and, and she messaged me. It was just a beautiful love she wrote, And It was very, very gracious. And I had her on and, you know, she talked about things in such a cerebral, organic way as both an artist and as an activist and a person who continues to exercise self-awareness, and she played her new song, uh, Somebody's Beloved, which is in response to the Breonna Taylor murder. And And she played it for me, which I didn't expect. So to me, that was a gift. Um, another episode I recommend is uh, my interview with Michelle Kim, who talked about um, DEI diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace and where uh, DEI falls short in a lot of companies. Uh, I I love her work. I think that her work is very transformative. Um, has the queer activist voice that she uses, which you know, which is so needed in doing di work rather than your typical corporate uh, glossing over of diversity and potlucks that we don't need to have. Um, who else? Yeah, there's. I got to see Kathy Park Hong's interview. I really enjoyed it very much. I'm a huge fan of Minor Feelings. Um, the second season. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the second season that if you're really interested in learning about the, the Southeast Asian diaspora, that's that's one I would look into. And I guess the first season, gosh, I mean, my interview with Aya Chang, I really think that she's an amazing person to work with. And, you know, even though I annoy the hell out of her sometimes, um, you know, she's really been teaching me a lot and she's taught a lot of folks. So, yeah, I hate to miss any anyone out of this because every one of them have been really good. I, If I had to be selfish, listen to all of them if you can. But, um, but yeah, those are ones that stuck out to me.
0: Mm, awesome. And all the links to the references that we talked about and these episodes. Do you have a favorite of yours?
1: A... <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite of your episodes?
0: Um, I have so... You know they're all so different it's like you're right it's like uh they're like children um but um who left a really profound impact um i did a series back in february that was on queer asian american perspectives on dating and I actually really really enjoyed that whole set, and that was done around like February. Uh, I had a couple guests: Ansh, Jonathan, Derek, Robin, um, Rajiv. All different perspectives of the uh, queer Asian community. Um, Jonathan is half Black, half Filipino. Uh, Robin. Yeah, I've is, heard of him. Yeah. yeah Robin is um, a mix of all different identities. And Ansh, non-binary designer, Rajiv, South Indian. And it was just really nice to have one topic in different flavors and really understand other people's nuances around dating. And I thought it was very, very enlightening, actually, where, you know, as queer Asians, we have things in common, but there are those really intricate nuances of the intersectionality right that we sometimes overlook and instead of creating a monolith um seeing where they diverge i think was a really really beautiful conversation with everyone yeah
1: that's awesome you know i actually really liked your episode that you did with client mendoza who i, who mm, I just uh recorded yeah. in interview with. I, could, I thought he was he's, he's a special <laughs> being and uh the one that you had on the uh yeah the queer Chinese hockey player. That was a very yeah, important John one. I, 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 yeah. I like that one too. And I can't oh. believe you got Margaret Cho on your show. <laughs> that one was like, wow, you got Margaret Cho?
0: Yeah, she is uh, oh, such an angel. Yeah, it's um, just a lot of people who are really passionate, you know, and I share this platform and people resonate with it. And I think the more we can lean into that and the community that we have as a creation community, there's so much mm-hmm. we can do as a whole.
1: Yeah. Amen to that.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate you so much and all your work and I think all the listeners will get so much out of this. So, thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you. This was a great conversation, Stephen, and all the best to you in uh, in the success of your podcast.
0: Oh, thank you and for all you listeners. Hope you enjoyed this podcast and hope you can take some of the learnings and let it lead you into a more mindful day and mindful life. And with that, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you later. (laughs) Bye now. Bye.